Hey everyone, I'm Jordan Mello and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear. Most of you know that I had a baby last year. It's kind of a big thing in my life, so yes, I'm still talking about it. Our baby's name is Evelyn. One of my teenagers had suggested the name one night around the dinner table, and all three of my older kids and my husband Paul instantly liked the name. But for some reason, sitting around that dinner table, I was the one that was resistant to it. However, the very next morning, just as I finished some quiet time with the Lord, I happened to check my phone. I got a notification that my friend Evelyn had bought us the baby mobile that hangs over top of the crib. She had gotten it off of my baby registry. And I instantly thought, sweet Evelyn. And then that prompted me to wonder, what does the name Evelyn mean? So I referred to the expert Google to check and I found out that Evelyn means desired, wished for. Immediately, I heard in my mind, God asked me, do you desire her? Do you wish for her? I do. As he said those words to me, I knew the Lord is there. I began to cry. What a perfect name for our bonus baby. And may the name Evelyn just constantly be a reminder to her that God desires her. He wished for her. I later found out that the name Evelyn finds its roots in the name Eve, which means life. And wow, she certainly is a bundle of life in our home. You know, knowing what a name means and even knowing the story behind the naming, that can greatly impact your understanding of a person. Well, we're halfway through the sermon series on the names of God. And our prayer for this series is that with each explanation of the name of God, that your understanding of who he is would expand, that it would impact your relationship with him. Today, the name that we're focusing on is Yahweh Shammah. It appears in Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35. Now, it's actually the name of a city that the prophet Ezekiel was shown in a vision. So it's not really a title of God per se, but it's so closely associated with God's presence and with his power that it is often equated with a name for God. Before we look at the meaning of the name of Yahweh Shammah, let's examine the story behind the naming. As is often appropriate, let's just begin at the beginning. When the world was first created, the book of Genesis for a short while, it portrays an easy intimacy between God and the man and the woman that he had made. They would walk and they would talk together in the garden. But as soon as humanity chose to rebel, rebel that intimacy was destroyed. And God removed the people from his presence. But he did not entirely abandon humanity. Instead, God begins to reestablish his relationship with them. Earlier this year, when we studied the book of Ezra, Pastor Joel, he began that sermon series by giving an excellent history lesson. I'm not going to show you that fancy flowchart that he had created, but 
I'll briefly recap the Old Testament timeline, just like he did, because it not only brings us to the book of Ezra, but also to the book of Ezekiel. So at first, God, he makes a covenant promise to Abraham to make him a great nation. God then delivers his people from Egypt under Moses. And God is there. He's guiding his people in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The people then settle in the promised land under Joshua. And God is there. He's dwelling in the tabernacle. Then that beautiful golden era under the reign of David and followed by Solomon. God is there. He's present in the temple. Well, then the kingdom was divided. The northern kingdom was exiled to Assyria in 721, and the southern kingdom of Judah, it was exiled to Babylon in actually three stages, and the first starting in the year of 605. At that time lived the prophet Ezekiel. He was one of the Jews that was taken into exile to Babylon, and it was probably in the second deportation of the Jews in 597 B.C., The main theme of Ezekiel's book is pretty hard to miss because the phrase, they will know I am the Lord, it's repeated over 70 times in his book. He writes about the Jews' blatant rebellion, their detestable practices, specifically about idolatry. The Lord says in Ezekiel 43 verse 8, They put their idol altars right next to mine, with only a wall between them and me. They defiled my holy name by such detestable sin. So you can see how angry this had made God. The second chapter of the book of Ezekiel, it warned the Jews that God's judgment was coming. From the 8th all the way to the 11th chapter, the prophet tells how he sees the glory of God leaving the temple. The leaving of God's glory from the temple. It must have been such a heart-wrenching vision. This is the glory of God that had led the nation from slavery in Egypt. It had remained with them in the wilderness wandering and it had settled with them in the tabernacle and then the the temple. But here, Ezekiel no longer sees the presence of God in the temple. Chapter 11, verse 23 tells that He saw the glory also went up from the city of Jerusalem. Now, how God left, it tells us something so significant about who he is. God's departure from the temple and Jerusalem, it happened slowly in stages. First, he moves out of the most holy place into the threshold of the sanctuary. Then he moves from the sanctuary out to the east gate of the temple. See, I think that if we notice this slow departure, this speaks to God's love for his people. He's giving them every opportunity to repent. At each stage, God, he lingers before he moves further away. Bible tells us he is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And when God's presence departed from the temple, It signaled to the Israelites and all who dwelt around them that God had removed his hand of protection from them. Well, why did God abandon the physical temple? It was in order to bring destruction to it. But the reason behind that is because God hates sin. God is holy. From the beginning of time, God was very clear 
Sin is evil and it must be punished or God would not be God. When God made a covenant with his people, he clearly told them he would bless them if they kept faithful to him. And if they rebel, there would be consequences. Being present with the Lord is the gift. And so being absent from the Lord is the punishment. Similar to what happened in the garden after sin, God caused separation between his presence and his people. But he had an intent to restore it. In exile, years later, Ezekiel wrote these encouraging words to the Jews too. He reassured them that judgment would not last forever and that God would restore Jerusalem, that he would once again live among them. Ezekiel, speaking for the Lord, In Ezekiel 37, verse 26, he says, And I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give their land, give them their land, and increase their numbers. I will put my temple among them forever. I will make my home among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's in chapters 40 through to 48 which are actually written in the 25th year of Israel's captivity, that Ezekiel starts to describe the new temple and a holy city. This prophecy that the glory of God would return, that would be the hope that enabled them to endure their exile. In his vision, Ezekiel, he's taken to Israel where he sees a mountain and a city, and he's met by a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. Ezekiel goes on to describe in detail a Jewish temple of magnificent proportions with regular, perfect sacrifices and with the Messiah presiding and with the glory of God returning. Ezekiel 43 verse 2 says, Suddenly the glory of the God of Israel appeared from the east. The sound of his coming was like the roar roar of rushing waters. And the whole landscape shone with his glory. I fell face down on the ground. And the glory of the Lord, it came into the temple. Then the Spirit took me up, brought me into the inner courtyard, And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The Lord said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place that I will rest my feet. I will live here forever among the people of Israel. It's in the final words of the book of Ezekiel where we see the name. Ezekiel 48 verse 35 says, And the name of the city from that day shall be The Lord is there. Some interpret this vision of Ezekiel's temple figuratively. Others expected a literal fulfillment. The prophet's vision, it simply reiterated that God would once again, he would dwell with his people. The restoration of the people of Israel and their temple, it did not come in the way that they thought it would. Not by military might, but by a baby born in a manger. He was their redemption. 
He was the presence of God living among humanity. It's in John chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then in verse 10 of also John chapter 1, He came into the very world He created, but the world didn't recognize Him. Verse 12, But to all who believed Him and accepted Him, He gives the right to become the children of God. And verse 14, So the Word became human. And made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the Father's one and only Son. See, Jesus, he fulfilled what the temple represented. His death atoned humanity's sin. He was the final sacrifice that reconciled God's relationship with his people. In John chapter 3, Jesus explains there that those who believe in him will receive everlasting life. And he continues in John chapter 14 by explaining that after his resurrection, his followers will know that he is in the Father and we are in him and he is in us. Essentially, the moment that you declare him to be your Lord, he deposits his spirit in you. The Spirit confirms and assures Christ followers of our eternal state as children of God. Yahweh Shammah, the Lord, is there. Well, how do you know that God is there? I, I love kids' movies, and specifically Dr. Seuss's Horton Hears a Who is one of my favorites. And there's this kangaroo who insists to Horton the elephant, that he is wrong about life on a tiny speck of dust. And exasperated at Horton's belief in such small persons, the kangaroo declares, if you can't see, hear, or feel something, it doesn't exist. How would you respond to such a statement? The Apostle Paul would challenge it by saying what he said in Romans 1.20, says, forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything that God made, they can clearly see God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. What this tells us is that when we look at the beauties of our universe, when we consider the intricacies of human life, it just makes sense that a good, personal, conscious, rational, creative, powerful, and wise God exists. Evidence is available, and God is willing to reveal himself, but it's a humility of heart that's needed to see the God who is there. Knowing the presence of the Lord is a gift. Jesus said, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my father will love them and I will love them and I will reveal myself to each of them. The name God is there 
It means more than simply that God exists. The name Yahweh Shammah, it infers, infers that God's very presence changes everything. That name, Yahweh, Shammah, would have special meaning for the Jewish exiles. See, what made Israel the people of God, it was the presence of God dwelling among them. They were not special because of their wealth, their power, their land, or their military. They were special because the one true God made his home among them. God's presence was essential to them being who God called them to be. See, they felt forsaken in Babylon. They were cut off from God. But in Ezekiel's vision of this glorious city of promise, the one that's named the Lord is there, Yahweh, Shammah, or Jehovah, Shammah. Yahweh and Jehovah, these are interchangeable names. So this first part of the name simply means the Lord. And the full name that's used here in scripture, the Lord is there. To the Israelites, this name means God has not forsaken us. This name emphasizes his presence, which is protection. His nearness, which gives strength. His indwelling with his people, which gives purpose and identity. This name, the Lord, is there. It's a reminder for all who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ that the presence of the living God in the person of the Holy Spirit is there. He is called the helper, the comforter, the guide. John 14 verse 15 says, he will never leave you. Now, how can you tell that the Holy Spirit is there? Number one, transformation. The Holy Spirit is the one that's transforming you into a fully devoted follower of Jesus. He makes us new. He changes our behavior, the way that we think about things. He renews our perspectives from what's holding us back. Titus 3 verse 6, it describes our salvation as a process through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Second thing, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Listening, trusting, following his lead. Romans 8, 14 confirms that for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. Number three, fruit of the Spirit. You know, one sign that you have received the Holy Spirit is the presence of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 to 23 lists these things. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, these character qualities are not something that's natural to us as humans. We actually need God's spirit to help us to live with those fruit being evident in our lives. And number four, spiritual gifts. Every believer receives a supernatural, empowered gift that equips them to be an ambassador for God. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And you look for these four things in an, in an individual and in a church, and you know the Lord is there. The other marker of knowing God's presence in a community is unity. Sin is a disruptive force. It always divides. 
it separates, it splinters. So the unity that we have in Christ is part of his grand design. It is one of the peculiar marks of the Christian calling to preserve the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. Since Christian unity is a result of God's work in Christ, the unity of the church, it's organic in character. She's not a collection of parts. She's a new creation, a spiritual body created by God in Christ. See, the old has been done away in this body. There are no longer the distinctions of man. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. There is diversity, yes, but it's diversity in unity, uh, not uniformity. See, the parts do not look alike. They do not function alike, yet they're all important, all needed, interdependent, and they all work towards the same end. The purposes for which each member was designed in the function of the body as directed by the head and in accordance with the creative purpose of God. The name Yahweh Shama. It doesn't actually occur in the New Testament, but the Apostle John, he clearly takes Ezekiel's description of the restored city. He applies it to his vision of the new Jerusalem that will come down to earth out of heaven when sin is no more. In Revelation, the Apostle John, he writes that following the return of the Lamb and after the destruction of Satan, of his evil kingdom, finally of death itself, John has this vision of an eschatological city of God. We're going to turn our attention now to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verse 2 and 3. John writes this, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It was coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. I spoke on this particular passage over a year ago when we did a series on the book of Revelation. I want to repeat a quote that I used from Daryl Johnson. He writes this, he says, this future city, it comes down. It's not our doing. The city coming with Jesus Christ is God's doing. It's God's work. God's new work. God's new creation. See, we humans, we did not form the first creation, and we do not form the new creation. I love the language in this passage in Revelation 21. The language that's used, it describes the relationship between God, the creator, and his city. Ah, oh, It's such intimate imagery that's, that, that comes from how the city is prepared as a bride. You know, a bride, well, she looks her best on her wedding day for her husband, right? And just like the church was referred to as Christ's bride in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, so now the city, similarly, it represents those of God's people who were already with God in heaven, and they're adorned in bridal wear, they're ready for the covenant that joins God and his people forever. And the reason that God comes down is to live with his people. God's no longer going to be separated, but he's going to be present in a different way than what we get to experience him this side of heaven. 
No longer will our sin actually be the obstacle to our intimacy. Our relationship is going to be transformed. Revelation 21, verse 22 and 23, John says this, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God. It illuminates the city and the lamb is its light. Okay, the difference between Ezekiel's vision and then John's vision is that there's no temple. One commentary I read said this, this passage, it speaks of hope in terms of relationships rather than in terms of places or things. This new city, it's the new holy of holies. And we don't have to leave it. We will remain in God's presence. Saints no longer stand before God, but it says all peoples will walk in the light of the glory of God. We will walk in the light of the glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God, that's the tangible proof that God is present, that God is there. Now, like the Israelites... So many centuries ago, we have the promise of a glorious city where we will live with God. He will be there. He will be our God and we will be his people. He is the God who is always there. But this promise, it's not only for the future. God is there for us today as well. Like the Israelites in Babylon, you know, we may have sinned. We may feel forsaken and alone, but God promises to never leave us, to never forsake us. Even as I said those words, did you happen to wonder, hmm, I wonder if he's ever going to give up on me. Maybe you've questioned, maybe you feel like, oh, I've, I've possibly just sinned too much for God or the specific sin that I, has, that I have uh, been doing is just too much for him to forgive. Please hear the truth of scripture here. Romans 5 verse 20 says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Maybe, maybe you feel you aren't worth God's grace. My brothers, my sisters, let me tell you, your worthiness has nothing to do with your salvation. You are forgiven on the basis of Christ's worthiness alone. He's the Holy One who died and shed His blood. He's the one who purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's Revelation 5 verse 9. So if you are a child of God, there's no way that God will ever give up on you. You have this promise. It says, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue His work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. It's Philippians 1 verse 6. He is Jehovah, Shammah, God is there. Before he returned to heaven, Jesus promised his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that promise is for each one of us as well. As Christians, living on this side of the life and the work of Jesus, 
a faithful response to today's passages would be to intentionally search our hearts and to repent. To repent before God for the ways that we've presumed upon or the ways that we've neglected his presence. You know, many years ago, I was volunteering as a part of a team and we were serving at a camp that was held on a First Nations reserve. And during the trip, the pastor that was leading us, he had been fasting and I knew he was intentionally pursuing the presence of God. He followed Christ's example. He would get up early in the morning. He would go off by himself and he would spend time with the Lord praying before our day's activities. One evening after we had finished this testimony and a powerful worship time, I was just standing talking to some of the residents from the reserve when a team member came running to tell me, quickly come because the pastor has fallen on his face down on the ground. So I approached him. I knelt down. And the moment that I put my hand on his back, I felt what I can only describe as the presence of the living God. I felt goosebumps, but I wasn't cold. I felt warmth. I felt peace. And yet at the very same time, I felt so overwhelmed at my own sinfulness. There wasn't a specific sin that that I had just become aware of, but rather just in God's holy presence, I knew I'm a sinner. I prayed, God, forgive me. God, thank you for salvation through Jesus. And then I just started praying for our pastor. See, God had been speaking to him. He was preparing him. He was giving him a different assignment in ministry. And shortly after that trip, he transitioned and and we blessed him. He, He left very well. But that experience of God's presence, wow, it it marked me. It makes me ask myself regularly: do I hate sin? So I ask you, do you hate sin, lust, greed, hypocrisy, sexual immorality, idolatry, these ought to be detestable things to us. Parents, do you teach your children to hate sin? Because the world that we live in, it's going to teach them to celebrate it and to try everything. And too many of us in today's culture, we're so hesitant to teach what's right from wrong. See, Ezekiel explained that God removed his presence from the temple because the people defiled his holy name by sinning. God, he hates sin because it deceives us into seeking pleasure from what the world can offer instead of finding pleasure in the presence of God. We need to hate sin because it separates us from God. No one No thing impure or evil will be allowed in the new heaven and the new earth. So today's the day. Repent. Sin no more. Seek first his kingdom. Because those who have their sins forgiven, they can say along with the psalmist, you will show me the way of life. You'll grant me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever.
from that place of repentance that we can be comforted, knowing that because of Jesus Christ, God will never again depart from his people. The glory of God is the forgiveness of sin. And if you do not personally know the presence of God, if you don't have relationship with him, what else could you possibly be waiting to hear about? Because the presence of the Lord is such an incredible gift now and forever. All you need to do is call upon the name of the Lord. The Lord is there. And he is. I'm going to close with a poem. M.S. Lowndes wrote this poem titled, God is Always There. We often feel as though God is far away. We often feel that he's distant when we pray. So often we feel lonely, not knowing where to turn. Just a touch from God above, our longing spirits yearn. So many times in our lives, God seems slow to act, and we cry out in desperation, but it's faith we often lack. For God is not being slow in coming to our aid. He comes through in his time. We just need to learn to wait. The Lord is never distant. He is there by our side and continues to walk with us through the storms in our lives. He always hears our hearts cry and answers all our prayers. He won't leave us all alone, for God is always there. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so incredibly much that your name is the God is there. Oh, we see your presence in our unity, but we ask for help. We ask, Lord, you would help us as a community to quickly overcome any potential thing that could cause division. Would you personally reveal to us sin in our lives that is separating us from you? We invite you, your presence in our lives, in this place, a guaranteed place of meeting with you. And oh God, I pray that when people look at us, that they would say, God is there. So it's in our Savior's name I pray, Yahweh Shama. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. God bless your week, and we'll see you next time.